and welcome to Postcards to the Future, the podcast that listens into the artists, producers, publishers and directors who are shaping the future of arts and culture. Hello, I'm David Micklem and today I'm talking to Bryony Kimmings, performance artist, writer, theatre maker, comedian, feminist, playwright, activist, musician and self-confessed loudmouth. Inspired by the taboos, stigmas, anomalies and social injustices around her, Bryony creates mind-blowing, multi-platform artworks to provoke change. Her genre-busting work includes the extraordinary I'm a Phoenix Bitch, which The Guardian described as an exhilarating ride via pop video, horror movie, art installation and therapy session. She also wrote and performed a musical about cancer for the National Theatre and Fake It Till You Make It, a bold and funny show about clinical depression and men. She also co-wrote with Emma Thompson Last Christmas, a romantic comedy inspired by the music of George Michael and released in cinemas Last Christmas. Hi, Brian, how are you? Good to have you on the podcast today. What have you been up to these last few days? Oh, do you know what? I've gone through a period of pitching for work and suddenly, like, and there's been loads and loads of things to, like, complete, and my head's been in, like, 50 different things, and then all of a sudden one's come in, so I've spent... Like, I felt like I've been walking on air, that I walk up my stairs to my office and I'm just writing one thing. So it's, like, that lovely, cosy time of being like, right, now I'm an artist, now I'm a writer, rather than a broker of art... Yeah. You've got a live project. Well, it's not a live project, it's a telly... Oh, but yeah, yeah, it's live. It's alive and live, yeah. It's alive, it's a thing. Yeah, so that's cool. So I want to talk to you about telly and film. In an email, you said to me, maybe half-jokingly, I hope not, that you might never make a piece of theatre again. And I guess I wanted to ask you what might change your mind. Oh, man. Well, I've spent the last... Well, since my son was born nearly five years ago, I've spent a long time trying to extricate myself from that world, not because I particularly hate it, because although I find it frustrating in many ways, I don't, it's my craft, you know. But um, life is just not conducive with touring and making work anymore, whereas in my 20s and 30s, I was free to live that transient lifestyle. Now I have a kid, plus he's got special needs. I had to think really, really quickly, what am I going to, how am I going to use these skills to do something that keeps me at home. So I imagine I will make a live show again. I'm very, um, it's part of my life and I I do like being clapped. Um, So, um, you know, at some point, but I I have no plans to make anything at the moment. So I've sort of sat back and been a bit like, gosh, wow, this is a strange feeling when you see something slightly, you know, burning to the ground and being like, oh, I'm I'm quite safe from this um, inferno. I said to my friend, who is also sort of moved a lot more out of live stuff into teaching and sort of said a bit, a bit like those birds before an earthquake, you know, suddenly we were sort of, <laughs> we saw it happening or something, I don't know. But yeah, I will make something, but it's really not a single mum's game, mm-hmm. sadly. And is there anything about your experience of working in film and TV that you think we could learn from in the kind of wider arts and cultural sector? Are there any kind of practices or approaches or ways that you're respected or treated as a as an artist in TV and film that feel like we should learn from this way of working? The money, you know, that's the main thing. Not that you can do much about that, I don't suppose, because the revenues are different in terms of output revenue. But yeah, I mean, film and TV are really different to one another as well. Writers in film are less um, acknowledged and less kind of heralded, but in TV, they're the gods. 
you know, what the writer says kind of goes. So you're treated very well. You get a lot of gifts. <laughs> you get a lot of support. And different companies are different. You know, some companies I've worked with and been like, I am never working with you again. And then other places, it's like a dream, you know. So it depends on the ethos of that organisation and the sort of support they want to give you. But I felt much more respected and sort of heralded for my craft than I have in the in the performing arts, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is a shame, isn't it? Yeah, it is a shame. <laughs> we were chatting over email before we had the podcast about, I guess, some of the conditions that you would want to experience if you were coming back to theatre again. Mm. And you create an amazing list, a sort of splurge <laughs> of how you want to work again. Yeah. Do you want to just sort of talk us through that a bit? And just sort of, I think that probably came from the fact that much of the work you've made previously wasn't made in that way. It was made on a kind of shoestring where you were sort of doing it for peanuts. And yeah. of course it was satisfying, but... Yeah, tell me a bit about that. About If you're imagining a sort of world in sort of three or four years' time when you're tempted back into theatre, yeah. what should be some of the kind of determinants of how you get to work? Okay, so I wrote a list because mainly because the process of making my last show was very different to previous processes, I guess because of the the level that my career's got to and therefore the financial investment that it kind of warranted. Um, so we had a, Phoenix. Yeah, bitch. Phoenix. I'm yeah. a Phoenix bitch. Uh, it just had a much, much bigger budget than anything else. Um, but we we were given a space by um, uh, Acker in Brighton. I live in Brighton. And um, it was for the whole summer because uh, it's a university and they were closed. And they've got this beautiful refurbished theatre with loads and loads of equipment. And they just said, you can have a couple of techs and you can have the use of the theatre for the whole time. So we made the show, all of the creatives in one room. And I don't know how, and people might not know how you normally make theatre, so you you would never do that. You would put this the sort of technical side on at the end um, in the tech week or maybe the week before tech week. You'd sort of go from not having had a set or lights, or film, or props. Well, some props maybe. You'd then try and put it all together, and I've always found that a very, very frustrating way of working because my work is very visual, and it's very collaborative. So, And it's also hard to leave time and space for imaginary things, so you find yourself cramming quite a lot of text and quite a lot of movement and action into a show, which then, when you're teching, you start to sort of go, oh, God, there's no space here for sound design, there's no space here for film. So we were all in the room together, and because of that, there was a pub opposite, there was a playing field out the back and a big, beautiful wood. And we just, we had the dressing room, which Tom set up as a music studio. We had a recording studio. We had the stage. We had um, a room where we were building lots of set and props. And it was a really, really beautiful collaborative experience and also really kind of um, a time for us all to bond as creatives that we'd never had before. Um, so I would say I would never make a piece of work again if it wasn't all 10 of us in a room, which is ludicrously expensive and, you know, in totally not what is normal. So it made me, when you asked, like, what, you know, how would I f- go back and what would it be different? It would be that. I'd do that again. I'd also provide everyone with a therapist and a gym. I'd pay everyone a lot higher than they were getting paid. The going rates are so weak that, you you know, you don't blame people for not being able to come in every day or, you know, not being able to pay for a, a creche or whatever. So then I'd provide childcare, I'd provide food. I just felt like we communed and we kind of, we were like kids playing. And from that heart and that kind of sensibility of feeling like children and feeling safe... And together, 
we were able to create something so much better than anything I'd made before. So yeah, I'd have to do that, I think. I think you can see that process in the work. You can see the kind of the richness of the work is a product of the richness of the process. The fact you've had all those people yeah. with you for that period of time. It means that the craft developed because you. I left space because it wasn't even a thought because, you know, my work's always like this. Okay, we need to create this feeling in the audience and we need to communicate this part of the story and we need to develop this part of the character. So if that's what the scene's got to do, who in this room has the best skills to do that? What would you do? Let's say you want the audience to feel like they're in a deep within a forest. Um, what would you do, Lewis, who's a sound designer? Okay, well, I'd make it surround sound. I'd even make sound be coming up from underneath their feet so it felt like they were walking. You know, I'd I'd do that. Okay, fine. And what would you do, Will, who's this, the video designer? Well, you know, I'd probably project all around the space. Uh, what would you do, Bryony? You know, and what would you do, Tom? So it was like, okay, let's try and put different levels of all those things together. Like, what if the major note is just me saying I'm in a forest? It's different to being like, okay, sound-wise, we're in a forest. So it meant that everybody had a different level and it was a real um, joint effort. Um, I'd also have a body double because I, I was directing, co-directing that work and I was really frustrating to not see what was happening and decisions were being made without me because I find myself a bit of a control freak I have a vision I know what I want it to look like so at the end I got in a body double and I should have had her for the beginning so I mean that's very niche for me but um mm -hmm. it was a nice realization that I would never do it again without a couple of body doubles in the room so I could see and perform I've heard you talk about some of the artists who really inspire you and they're kind of my top 10 too I think people like Brian LaBelle and Action Hero and Dr Brown and Kim Noble and and Liv Young amazing artists yeah. I'm just wondering if they had the kind of resources that you had for Phoenix. What do you think might change for them or or not? I find that a, dif a difficult question because who knows what they want from their practice and also who knows that they haven't got that investment before and spent it on a completely different project or that they would even want to make a show of mid-scale. I would hope that we that we do live in a, a kind of culture that would allow them to, but then I don't think that's true because I had this wonderful opportunity with Complicite to, you know, go from making a small scale two-hander to making like an 18-piece musical that cost about 750 grand, you know, like it was... This is the cancer show. Yeah, the cancer musical. And the whole idea of that was take an artist who is ready to move to mid-scale, but that the opportunity isn't there and the funding isn't there because it isn't, it really isn't... Um, in the same breath as saying, you know, you make tiny things as well as big things, even when you're a really large scale artist, bigger than me, you don't get signposted to that mid-scale work. You, it, the assumption is that you might just want to be this little niche artist like I was and that you're kind of happy with that. But I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't see the um, trajectory as set. And in some ways that's great. And in other ways that's really difficult because no, like any other job, you'd be moving up the ranks in a really clearly defined way that was kind of like meetings every year to say, like, how's it going? Like, are you achieving your aims in your life? And as an artist, you're just like, well, I don't know what I'm fucking doing. You know, like, it's, uh, like <laughs> so I think I'm a really savvy businesswoman because I've come from a business, arts business background. So I attract money because I'm good at getting money. Um, if, they, if those artists wanted to create something mid-scale, I don't know if they do, I would pay 
a hundred pound to see them. You know, like I would much rather watch artists like that making work of a scale than the the sort of things that are available at mid scale now. And I would like to see people that attend much more mainstream work getting the opportunity to see those shows because I think all of the artists that I like are extremely accessible. It's just that we are as yet don't have the language to talk about art like that in the public consciousness. But we so could, you know, like it's not an intellectual's game. It's just like we don't have that language yet. I want to explore that a bit more because I think it's interesting that you often describe yourself as a live art practitioner or a live arts practitioner. And that often can be seen by many people as a kind of very cerebral, very kind of academically based practice. I don't think the layperson knows what a live artist is. I don't even think, no. I don't call myself a live artist. I call myself a performance artist. And sometimes people call me a live artist. But a performance artist always came from the fact that I wanted people to be like, oh, performance art, and then be like, oh, this is performance art. I really like it because I feel like it is actually intellectually the term that I sit best within that kind of like melting pot of all those different forms of art cabaret theatre visual art um community work whatever do you know what my dream would be actually which i've started a bit you know i've done made two documentaries now one for channel four and one for bbc4 bbc4 one's out um at the end of july or will be on the iplayer if this goes out after that but um and that's single mums doing opera but the idea with my work has always been to make performance really accessible that your nan could watch it as well as you know as your sort of arty beard stroking friend um and i would love a program like um grace and perry gets that's about performance and how live performing for anyone that isn't a performer is so in like invigorating it's so um confidence boosting it's so adrenaline inducing it's such a beautiful experience for people to create as children we create you know and then we get that bashed out of us so um I would love to do a show about what performance is and kind of give people the language and tools in a really fun way to be able to go, oh, I quite fancy going to see some of that. But at the moment, it's sort of kept as this like slight bastion of um, of elitism. And actually, I think that in some ways that's purposeful and that is my worst nightmare. Like, I hate that. That is like, you know, all of my friends that live on council estates know what performance I is because I fucking tell them all the time. But And they'll always go to see shows now. You know, like people I know from school always text me like, what's coming to the junction, you know, that's really weird and edgy and cool. And it's like, they're like, we loved it. You know, Action Hero was one that everybody loved, That you know, kids that I grew up with. It's not that it's not for them. It's just that they don't quite, they're not quite allowed in yet. And that is also my worst nightmare. <laughs> So that's brilliant. What would allow them in? What would get a company like Action Hero working from TV to large scale performance to intimate small scale? You were sort of implying there might be some blockages that are stopping that. Well, assuming that they would want to, because who knows what they want. Let's say a fictional company, because I, I know Action Hero and they might be like, stop talking about us, about us not doing TV yet, you know, or whatever. But um, I don't know, man. Each one has its own little... Um, you know, ring-fenced gate that they don't necessarily want to acknowledge the others. So, you know, you tell a live artist at their theatre and sometimes they'll get annoyed and then tell a theatre maker that they should write TV and they're like, why would I do that? TV sucks. And then tell TV people that they should go and watch live art because the writers of live art are so... And they'll be like, no, we only really access 
um, writers through theatre. You know, there's all of those little things and it's like, why are we calling everything? Like, what? Like, we're all writers. Like, even if you don't say anything on stage and you're just moving your body, you're a writer, you're telling a story, you know, a writer in the loosest sense of the word or an artist. I think artists don't get the skills often at university to tell them to plan their careers, that they need a practice and that that can always be constantly reassessed and applied to different ways of creating. So I have a really great commercial agent who took me on knowing that I was a performance artist, but also that I wanted to do books and telly and film and that I had a very individual voice that I was very aware of and I was curating and creating and always developing so that anything you saw, the hope is anything you see by me has a flavour of that practice. So even if it is last Christmas, you know, the film that I wrote with Emma Thompson that was directed by Paul Feig, you know, two big wigs in like comedy and acting, you can see that my voice is in there because there's things that I would say in a show that that character says. So the hope is that, or the thing that would help is for artists to be told that they're developing a voice. They're not developing a form. They're not just looking at making theatre. Over the, their career, they will have a child and not be able to tour. They will break their leg and not be able to dance. You know, they will change the way they think and feel about the world. They will change the way they think and feel about form. So if you're just taught to develop your voice, then you should be able to apply it to any form and craft. That's on the artist side and the education side. On the other side, all these bastions of good, in inverted commas, theatre, they're very, very safe. You know, the thought of me doing the National Theatre was really welcomed and applauded, but I was the weirdo artist that they'd mm -hmm. kind of, you know, got a bit edgy programming, which the pressure on me to make that work good and for it to sit between theatre and also performance really messed up my head and really, really... Um, damaged my own confidence in making work. I would never do it again. I would never want to make something for them again. I love them, but it's not for me. So that kind of, we're taking a risk on you. This is a bit edgy for us. That's got to go in the bin. That thought is performance. Harold Pinter, Bryony Kimmings. <laughs> Don't tell anyone yeah. I just said that. Like, but <laughs> <laughs> Samuel Beckett, same as Bryony Kimmings. Um, yeah, like I think it's, of course, there's a hierarchy, right? And there's things that bring in an audience that are safer bets than things that aren't. Um, but why is that? Because we're not telling audiences in the right way that they should see that work. And by sort of making it the one weird show in a programme, instead of making the whole programme that work, then you're sort of saying, you know, we know this is a bit weird. The image is weird. The way we talk about it's weird. Um, <laughs> it, so like, take a risk on it. Worth, you know, like worth taking a risk. And it's like, what kind of risk is this? The audience have no yeah. idea about what theatre is or isn't. You've put it on a stage in front of an audience and sell tickets. It's theatre. Like it's, people don't go like, oh. So Brian, if you had the ear of those gatekeepers, those people who've got the kind of programming muscle or the hands on the levers of programming in theatres around the UK, what would you be saying to them about sort of coming out of this crisis? Make stuff, create stuff for the people that live in your local area. Like, I don't know why that's hard. Like, I, I really go into meetings and I'm like, I don't know why any of you are talking about. Like, let's say my my hood, yeah, my, where I'm from, Peterborough, yeah, or Cambridge. is. I'm in between the two when I grew up. It's like half Italian town, half English town. 
quite a lot of Asian people live in the town too, British Asians. So it's like, if I was going to make something for my town, what would I make? Well, I wouldn't put on Pinter. Like, I wouldn't. I'd put on, like, mm -hmm. various other works, you know. Like, I I kind of feel like sometimes those people are trying to look look good, one, two, sell tickets. Those people being... The people that run those venues, the people yep. that program and, and create the program for those venues. I don't know if this is true, but this is what it feels like as a lay person. Um, you know, they're trying to look good to the rest of the people that are doing those jobs in England, good to the press. Um, they're also trying to, at the same time, you know, keep a bottom line, which never seems to work anyway, because no theatre is ever going, -ra -ra, we made millions this year apart from West End <laughs> Theatre. So, like, I don't get why we're being so worried about putting on things that are really safe bets when, or, you know, there's hardly any audiences anyway. You know, it's a dying kind of form uh, in terms of the audiences that go to it. And then, yeah, I, I, I wonder if the two things that are the most important thing about theatre just get missed, which is like, the artist or the writer and the performers and the audience. Like, that's all it is. Like I just said to you, if I go out my front door right now and I get my boombox out and I play some music and I get a microphone, I'm doing a show. And if a guy walks past with a dog, he's watching that show. So I'm, an, I'm a performer and he's the audience. That's it. That's all you need. So why are we not going, who are the local audience? What do they like? Now, that's because at the moment, most people would be like, in my town, they'd be like, we like Mamma Mia, right? Because Mamma Mia's great, right? And it is great. It's a really feel-good, fun, brilliant show to go to. So these swanky theatres are like, we're not putting on Mamma Mia. We're highly educated, artistic people. We don't like Mamma Mia. And it's like, I don't care what you like. This isn't your building. It's the building that belongs to the people in your community. In um, maybe five years' time, that Mamma Mia audience will have seen you know, they'll have seen Mamma Mia. Then they might have seen a little bit of something else. Then a little bit of something even more weird, you know, because each year they'll take a risk. They'll start to trust that venue. They'll start to trust the programming. There'll be ways in which we market to those people that are like, try something different. Not crazy weird, but like, how about this? You like this? How about this? Or even before Mamma Mia, why don't you put on a weird stand-up performance artist like me going like, guys, this is what performance art is. Five minutes before the show, Bomb or not bomb, that's what it is. You've got a captive audience there. So I think that this kind of elitist, educated stronghold over creativity negates the fact that most artists just want an audience and they just want to develop their voice as an artist and they just want to speak to people. So for me, it's really, really fucked up. <laughs> and it's really simple as well, what you're saying. It's about those people relinquishing power, some power, to the artist to have a conversation with audiences about what it is they might want to see and hear on those stages. Yeah, and artists have a responsibility as well to not be wanky. Do you know what I mean? And not be like, make work that's like, what? why am I watching this? Like, what's this got to do with me? You know, because also artists really forget and this is a thing that could happen better in the future, is that artists forget that they're not there for them. They're there for the audience. The audience is who needs to think and feel. We don't care what the artist thinks and feels. We're pretending, but what we're doing when we're looking at that artist is we're thinking about ourselves. When we're listening to the story, we're thinking about ourselves. We're not thinking about the artist. So the artist's ego has to go as well as the kind of the, um, the venue ego, I think. Giving up the power, yeah. And is there an example in your practice or in somebody else's practice that kind of springs to mind when you think of a kind of exemplar of that way of working, really listening, really taking into account who lives and works around a particular cultural institution? 
Is there a project you've done or one that you can think of that others have done that sort of sets the bar? No, I'm I'm bad at it as well, I think. You know, like, I think that I'm a victim of this as well. Like, this is an example. So I was at BAC, which I think is connected to its local community pretty well in terms of where everyone sits. Um, I think it does a lot of work in that community and people know what that building is. You know, some places you can, in, like, you can walk and people like, what's that? And they'll be like, I don't know. There are, I suppose. Never been in there. Um... There was this guy, we were in the bar after a show and there's these two lads and they lived opposite and there's a low level, low rise flats opposite, quite rough. And um, these two lads were high as kites and they came into the bar and they were like, what is this place? You know, and we're like, it's a theatre. And they're like, oh man, we like theatre. We like, we like doing like performances. And um, I was like, cool, do you do the, like, do you do anything here? And they were like, no, 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 no. This isn't for us. This isn't for us. I said, well, let me give you two tickets to my show tomorrow. Um, if you come, let's see if you like it. And if you like it, then you like performance art. And they were like, nah, nah, we don't like performance art. Anyway, I was like, dudes, I'm putting them by. And I took them to the box office. I said, this is where the box office is. This is, I'm, can you put two tickets aside for these two lads? They were like in their late teens. They were really stoned. So I was like, I bet they don't remember. So I set a reminder in one of their phones. Anyway, the next day, and I'm doing the show and I walk out and they're in the front row, right? And I was like, I had to stop and be like, yes, like, hi. And they were like, hi, we came. And I was like, awesome. And it was just like, that took three hours of my life. <laughs> yeah, we were we were friendly anyway. We were having a drink and we were chilling out. But like, and it wasn't outreach because I wasn't doing it on purpose. I was just like, man, you should come. Let me give you some tickets. But like, that is long form. You can't do that everywhere you go as an artist but what you can do are many things that will allow those people to feel like they can come into the building which includes not putting um you know like hipster writing outside like coffee at like four quid and kind of like posters that you're like what even is that thing you know it's like standing out the front every day with a megaphone as people walk past on your high street and going this is a theater this is for you you can come in here the sort of things you will see like that does not happen nobody mm -hmm. knows what's going on so i don't know what the question was i've gone off on one but that was no it's brilliant i love it i love it that's what every theater should be doing every arts organization should be doing is paying much more attention yeah and i get that it's not possible i get that everyone's like oh man we just need to get some tickets sold and i haven't got any we don't have money for marketing and blah 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 blah, blah and it's going to cost money and it's like Ugh. everything is like always about money and actually how much does it cost to say employ five artists over the next six months to go to every community in this town and tell people what's going on. I don't mean like take a fucking show into a community centre that's meant to be in a sh in a theatre and go like, and put it on and be like, tick box, we went to that state. I mean, I'm going to knock on your door and say, did you know that there's a theatre in this town? Did you know it shows this kind of work? What would you like to see in that theatre? And people would just be like, what? There's a theatre? Like, it's like people... Like maybe people are so posh that they don't understand that the community, I'm from a council estate, you know, you would say, like, knock on someone's door and say, hey, did you see EastEnders last night? Like, it's it's the same. Like, it, I don't understand. It really confuses me and annoys me, theatre, actually. That's probably why I'm also not making theatre anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it is so posh, though, do you know what I mean? Unfortunately, I think that is the case in many. There are some fantastic, you know, examples where that's not the case. But I think for too many people, and that's what we're hearing through this Culture Reset program, for too many people, not just theatre, but arts and culture generally isn't something they talk about. It's not something that feels relevant to them. No. And I guess that's what this program is trying to do, is try and sort of rediscover people's version of relevance. So then do we need it? You know, 
do we need it? Because I think we do. Because in some of the, in some small way, those two lads afterwards were weeping and they were like, I want to call my mum after the show, right? And they hugged me so tight and they were like, we can't believe you went through that. And I'm like, these are two young lads from like the uh, estate opposite. I talk like them to a certain degree, yeah. So there's a slightly less barrier there when I walk on stage and go, all right, I'm Bradley Kimmins, like, hello. Um, But, you know, if if it's not, like for me, that was the best reaction to the show that I got the whole time. Five Star Guardian review, not as good as that. That was like, yes, boys, like this is what it feels like to have emotions about parenting. And one day you guys might be parents and you might remember this. Like, don't forget the women in your life might be struggling and they might cut themselves off from you. Like we were able to have that conversation afterwards. So for me, no, it's it, it shouldn't remain elitist. It, it's for everybody performance. It's for everyone to feel and think and assess their life through watching stories being played out and seeing how they would react in those situations. That's what live theatre does best. People thinking and breathing in a room and holding each other in through really difficult moments. It's not like TV. So if we believe that theatre is really, really for everyone, that everyone can benefit from it, then everything has to change. I love it. I love it. So what's going to change is that Bryony Kimmings is going to get a TV show, a bit like Grace and Perry's Art Club, but it's going to be getting people doing performance. <laughs> yeah. You're going to get those artistic directors out in the community talking to people about what it is they want, employing artists properly to go out there yeah. and to have conversations with communities. Anything else, Bryony? We're going to wrap up soon, but anything else that might to be firing you up at the moment? If you were the magic wand. Pay people more money pay artists more money. We've really proven at this time when people are getting furloughed and people are getting to work from home and do their jobs for arts organisations despite no art actually really happening that these artists are like, hang on a minute, this is our industry. We make this industry. Like, we are the actual product. Like, if you took away the product of an orange juice factory, you wouldn't have any orange juice, right? So... This lockdown has proven that we value artists so low in that economical hierarchy that now artists need to be paid more, they need to have pensions, they need to be told how to manage their money and they need to be supported through organisations as paid members of staff as far as I'm concerned, because this, I had to set up gig aid, you know, we raised £50,000 and just gave cash to artists because nobody else was giving them any cash to pay their rent. That's just me, you know, like, it's not, like, where were all those organisations? I know that they were trying to make people, you know, safe in their jobs, but nobody cared, like, and artists will really remember that. Brian, amazing. I would love to talk so much more to you about this, but we're kind of, I said we'd try and wrap things up in half an hour and it feels like about that. It's been amazing talking to you. You Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Postcast to the Future. If you subscribe to the series, then the next episode will seamlessly drop into your podcast platform. Postcast to the Future is a People Make It Work project devised and produced by Claire Doherty and David Micklem for the Culture Reset Programme, which is funded by the ever-brilliant Gulbenkian Foundation.